Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 4. I know that some of you were uh, commenting that I drive too much. Well, yesterday I only drove 402 miles. It was a short day. We took our uh, youngest off to uh, her second year at college and came back home, okay? Nacogdoches, Stephen F. Austin. So, this is the last one in college. Um, Teresa took her, the, our youngest, to the orthodontist on Friday. I had taken her to the last meeting with the orthodontist. And the orthodontist commented to Teresa about um, Kylie's grandmother, I mean grandfather, bringing, him to, bringing her to uh, the orthodontist. I was the grandfather. Now, she was not the grandmother. She was the mother, but I was the grandfather. I, I don't know what this story is telling you. Now, if you really want to get confusing, though, one of my daughters and her husband took another of my daughters and her husband to the rodeo the other night. And the worker thought the one couple was the parents of the other couple. <laughs> Go figure. We started chapter four last week with a discussion of one parable and a discussion about why Jesus spoke in parables. And we're going to uh, do a little bit of um, review of that, but we're going to do it in the middle of the lesson. So hang with us and we'll remind ourselves what we talked about last week. Verse 21 is where we pick up today. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He has used that phrase a couple of times. If anyone has ears, then let him hear. And we pointed out last week just looking around the room, it seems that most of us have physical ears. So what in the world is he talking about when he says, let those who have ears, let them hear? Well, he's obviously not talking about physical hearing. He's talking about spiritual hearing, and he's telling these parables, and then he's telling his disciples what they mean, so that his disciples will hear and understand spiritually the meaning of the parables, the lessons that he's teaching us about the kingdom of God. So his first observation in today's lesson is you bring out a lantern and you put a basket on top of it to hide it. No, you don't do that. Why would you light a light and then cover it up? Why would you do that? But rather, you turn on the light, you illuminate the room with the light. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, where we are commanded to not hide the light that God has given us. 
So the observation, the question is, why would we hide it? If God has given us light, why would we hide it? Well, the obvious answer is we're scared. We're scared of what people will think if we actually share the light that God has given us. Now, remember, we're dealing with a group of parables that are talking about the kingdom of God. So if God has brought the kingdom of God into your life, in some sense, you are to use that to illuminate the world around you. You are not supposed to hide it. And that's the observation of this very short parable. And then he has some interesting observations. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. You think things are being hidden, but they're not. We talk about this sometimes with regard to sin. You know, you think that you have hidden some sin. Well, obviously you haven't. Because at a minimum, God knows. God knows what you have done. And at the end of, the time of your life, it is going to be made manifest. In reality, though, sin usually works its way out at some point in your life. But here he's also talking about the kingdom of God. You see... He is sitting here telling his disciples, let me explain to you the kingdom of God. And when Jesus leaves the picture at the end of the book, when Jesus leaves the picture, we are commanded to go proclaim that to all those around us. While Jesus was telling his disciples to prepare them we have been commanded to spread that word and to make it manifest to the world around us. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, that's a strange phrase, but it brings us back to last week's lesson. There is this idea in the Bible that when God reveals truth to you individually, to us collectively, when God reveals truth, if you respect Bond positively to that truth, that is, you hear it, you put it into practice, then God will reveal more truth to you. And if you respond positively to that, God will reveal more truth to you. And you will grow and you will mature. But if at some point you say no to God, you just say, nope, I'm not going to pay attention to that then God's not under any obligation to continue to reveal truth to you. God is gracious. We appreciate that. But he is under no obligation. And in fact, this is telling us that it is quite possible that the truth you have heard will be removed from you. 
That is that downward spiral of Romans chapter 1 that we talked about when we talked about hardening our hearts. When we say no to God, God says, okay, I'll stop. And all of a sudden, we do not receive more truth because we have not responded to the truth that God has given us. Now, just to make sure we understand, this verse is talking about spiritual truth. This is not a book, a passage about economics, okay? Don't take people's money just because they don't have much of it. There's a whole series of discussions in the Bible about not abusing the poor. Don't do that. God watches over the poor and God will take care of it. This is not talking about economics. This is talking about spiritual truth. To those who have been given some and respond to it, more will be given. To those who have been given and they have not responded to it, even what they have will be taken away from them. So, verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces it by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Last week, we spent most of our time dealing with the parable of the four soils. Remember, the guy goes out spreading the seed, and he's broadcasting it. He's just throwing it out there. Some of it falls on the hard ground, never takes root, never grows. Some of it follows, falls in the rocky ground. It takes root, but it doesn't grow any deep roots. So when the storms come, it all dies off. Some of it grows among the weeds. And the weeds at some point choke the life out of it. And we had a long discussion about what those weeds are. The worries and cares of this world, the deceit of wealth and the desires for things that we ought not desire. But some of the seed falls in good soil, and that soil produces fruit. And obviously, the picture is, that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the good soil that responds to the seed because the seed is the word of God. Now, new parable. A man goes out and spreads the seed. This parable is not explained to us. But based on the context, we'll say the seed is the word of God. This is you and this is me spreading the word of God. We talk to people. We share what God has been doing in our lives. We tell them what we're learning in the scripture about God. We spread the seed. And we're going to assume, for the sake of this parable, that it falls on the good soil. But what happens? Well, the first day, nothing happens. The second day, 
nothing happens. The third day, nothing happens. I don't know about you, I remember as a child planting carrots. You know what? I wanted a carrot. Tomorrow, I wanted a carrot. I am kidding you not. We'd go out there and pull them up to see if they were growing. <laughs> Guess what? Once you pull them up, they don't grow. So we had these little tiny shrivelly carrots because we wanted to see growth. But what is this parable telling us? You go to sleep, you wake up. You go to sleep, you wake up. You go to sleep, you wake up. And at some point, you start to see growth. You start to see life coming out of the ground. You know, I don't study this stuff. I don't know how that happens. All I know is good seed in good soil produces something. And the passage is telling us to demonstrate patience. I believe Jesus is telling the disciples, the kingdom of God is going to grow. You're not going to know how it's going to happen, but it's going to grow. Wait, have patience, because the growth is going to come. First, there'll be the little sign, you know, the little thing sticking out of the ground. And eventually, there'll be a harvest of the fruit. Have patience. The kingdom is going to happen. What do we learn from this? There's two lessons that I think we need to get out of this passage. The first one is for those of us who have spread the word, who have shared the word, and we don't see a lot of fruit. We just don't. Let's face it, we don't. What this parable is teaching us is don't despair. Don't despair because the growth will come when you probably least expect it. Now, connecting this one to the last parable from last week's lesson, it is possible that the seed fell on bad soil, okay? But in this case, it is good soil. It's good soil, but it takes time. I have a son-in-law who's on staff at another church here in town, and he shares the gospel more than, I, I mean, you know, it just drives you nuts. I mean, we go to, out to eat, and he is asking the waiter where they go to church. And, I mean, it's fabulous. Now, he'll admit to you, though, that he doesn't have a lot of response. But you know what? That's not his problem. His problem is to share the gospel. And guess what he's doing? Sharing the gospel. That's what he does. That's spreading the seed. And then it takes patience. So the first lesson we learn is to not despair because we don't see growth immediately. And for heaven's sake, don't pull up the carrots to see if they're growing. <laughs> Just don't do that. It is a matter of trusting God. So that's the first lesson. 
Lesson number two. When the fruit does come, remember, you don't have a clue how it happened. There's an interesting phenomena. Therese and I in the car yesterday were listening to a podcast. I won't tell you what it was. But some big-name pastor, young, started some church, and has fallen away. And we read these stories. What we have are these godly men, and I'm going to assume most of them are godly at some point, but they go from nothing to the huge church, and at some point they wake up and think, look what I have done. The first lesson is don't fall into despair because you don't see fruit. The second lesson is don't fall into pride when the fruit does appear. What produced the growth? The seed, which is the word of God, and the good soil, which is the working of the Holy Spirit or something, because it certainly isn't you. When the fruit comes, praise God and in humility say, I don't have a clue how this happened. But praise God that it did. We want to think that I did it. Whatever it is, you know, it's kind of this general rule of life. If anything good happened in my life, it's because I did it. And if anything bad happened, it's somebody else's fault. Well, it's just as likely to be your fault that the bad happened. And it's just as likely that the only reason the good things happen is because of the grace of God. Dealing with the kingdom of God in this passage, dealing with the kingdom of God, remember it's all God's work. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the new believer that causes the growth to occur. Remember, it is the gifts of the Spirit. It is not the gifts of you. Lesson number one, don't fall into despair. Lesson number two, don't assume that you made the growth. I mean, it's the old joke, you know, the rooster who thinks that he's causing the sun to rise because he crows every morning. <laughs> you know there's no causal effect there, right? <laughs> but the most important lesson of this is you need to go spread the, the seed. You need to know the word and spread the word in the world in which you have been placed. <sighs> and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like the grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. What can we compare the kingdom of God? Now let's think for a moment at this point in time. 
that this is being, that this event is occurring. What does the kingdom of God on earth consist of? Well, it's Jesus, and let's give him, I don't know, a hundred disciples. The twelve that we know, and a group of following, okay? Compared to the Jewish authorities, compared to the Roman Empire, it's kind of pitiful. It's kind of small. But Jesus is saying that's not a problem. Look at the mustard seed. It is as tiny as it can be. Now, I might add, there are people who complain. We know today that there are seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed. Well, Jesus is talking to farmers in Israel at this particular point in time. What's the smallest seed that they know? A mustard seed. Let's not get too bit out of shape about that. He's telling them. He wants to use an example that they are familiar with. It's this tiny little mustard seed. And you plant it in the ground and it grows. And eventually gets to the point where birds can come and rest in its branches. What is the point about the kingdom of God? It may look that big. But you're going to put it in the ground and it's going to grow. And the birds and us can find rest in its branches. That's the point. With many parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Verse 35. We're going to a story here that is one of my favorites in the Bible. You know this because I use it all of the time. We're going to talk about Jesus calming the storm. To me, this is an exceptionally important passage. Because if it is true, and I believe it is true, if it is true... It shows to us, it demonstrates to us who Jesus really is. That's why when we're working through the book of Philippians that we did, and we get to Jesus emptying himself, I go to this passage to talk about the fact that he still is God. When we're working through the book of Hebrews and we're talking about Jesus being greater than, I use this passage, either here or the one in Matthew, to talk about Jesus is the Son of God. This is actually a painting by Rembrandt that I actually came across this week thumbing through some random book. This is the disciples in the boat in the storm. Now, I looked up the picture and it's kind of interesting it was in a museum in Boston, and in 1990, a group came into the museum, dressed as security guards, carried it and 10 other paintings off, and it hasn't been seen since. I just thought that was interesting. So what does this passage teach us about who Jesus is? 
On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. This would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Why was he asleep? This is not a hard question. This is not a theological question. Why was he asleep? He was tired. Why was he tired? Because he was a human being just like you and me. He was. You know what? I get tired. I unloaded all my daughter's stuff up a flight of stairs into a... I get tired. Guess what? Jesus is a human being just like you and I are. But. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Let's stop right there. First off, let's make sure we understand what's going on. You can see it in this picture. They're in a boat. Half of these disciples, or at least four or five of them, are fishermen by training. Okay? They know how to operate a boat, and they know how to operate on the Sea of Galilee. And they are out there in the water, and a storm comes down the valley and starts making massive waves. Now, enough of them are good fishermen. They know how to operate a boat. And at some point they realize they're not going to make it. Now, let's keep telling ourselves and reminding ourselves this storm is not a metaphor. It is a real, honest-to-goodness storm. These people are not ignorant and stupid. They understand storms. They know that their lives are in peril. They know that everything they've been trying to do isn't working. So what do they do in desperation? They wake up Jesus. What is Jesus doing? He's asleep in the boat. Why is he asleep in the boat? Because he's tired. What do you think the disciples expect Jesus to do? I expect that they think that he's going to help them bail water. You know, maybe one more hand bailing water will be enough. But that's not really why they wake him up. They wake him up because they're ticked off at him. Why are they ticked off at him? Don't you care? Don't you care about us? Don't you know that we're about to drown and you're asleep in the stupid boat? Now, just between you and me, I didn't write the scripture, so don't let me rewrite it. But these are fishermen. 
I would expect the language was a little stronger than was actually recorded here. Okay? Just my speculation. I think this is the inspired word of God, and it's true, but, you know, there were probably a few more expletives thrown in here. They were upset that Jesus was asleep while they were about to die. What did they expect him to do? I don't think they expected him to do anything. They just wanted him to know before they drowned that they were ticked off at him. My favorite movie is The Great Race with Tony Curtis. He is the good guy and the bad guy is Professor Fate. And they are on an iceberg going across the Bering Strait and they're sinking. And Tony Curtis turns to him, Jack Lemmon, and says, let's keep it to ourselves. And Jack Lemmon says, I will, until the water hits my mustache and then I'm gonna tell somebody. <laughs> the water has hit their mustache and they want to tell somebody. Jesus, how can you sleep through this? How can you sleep through this storm? And he awoke. Duh. He woke up. I had this vision. He wakes up. He stretches a little bit. Kind of looks around. Kind of amused at the whole situation. And he does not pick up a bucket and start bailing. He does not start grabbing an oar and start working toward shore. He does what nobody in the universe could do. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Let's remind ourselves. If you've ever taken a physics course, if you've ever seen waves before, you know that a wave is essentially a huge amount of energy stored in this mass of water. You've seen pictures of tidal waves, right? You know that out in the open ocean, a tidal wave is about this deep above the water. But it's traveling tremendously fast. And when it hits the continental shelf, that energy goes up and makes what you and I know of as a tidal wave when it hits the ground. It is huge amounts of energy stored in this water. And under normal circumstances, that energy has to dissipate. It has to go somewhere. And it takes time for that energy to dissipate into the surrounding water. Unless Jesus says, stop. And then what happens? It stops. It is over. It is finished. Jesus did what no other 
human being in this universe could do, he commanded the weather. He commanded the storm to stop, and it did. To somewhat paraphrase in a different context, C.S. Lewis, we have some options here. Either somebody, Mark, later, when he's writing this story, made the whole thing up. I mean, let's face it. It defies the laws of physics. The laws of physics say waves don't just stop. So, option number one. Mark, or somebody, just made the whole thing up. Let's say something really good about Jesus. Yeah, let's say that he commanded the storm. Now, that's not today's lesson, but I believe this is the Word of God. I believe that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired Mark to write the truth about what really happened. So if it is true that it really happened, what does it mean? It means that in Genesis chapter 1, when God spoke the world into existence, there was nothing, and God said, create, and it came into being out of nothing. And in John chapter 1, where we learn that that voice that created it was in fact the word of God that was in fact Jesus, that Jesus, who spoke the world into existence, was sitting in that boat asleep on a cushion. And he commanded the storm, and it stopped. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what this passage is showing us. This passage is demonstrating to us that Jesus is human because he was tired, and he is God because he did that which no human on the planet could do. Now, if we had more time, and we don't, this is not saying that science is not important. It's not saying science is wrong. It's just saying that God is above the created order. Science, we had a lesson about this when we talked about worldviews last year. Science is magnificent. I am alive standing here today because of science. But science is an explanation of the material world. And we as believers acknowledge the existence of a world other than the material world. There is a spiritual world, and God is in charge of all of it. So we are not refuting any scientific thing. We're just acknowledging that there exists a God who is outside of the natural order. That is Jesus. But we have one more observation to make. These disciples were terrified of this storm. They weren't terrified out of ignorance. They were terrified because they knew. They knew what the storm could do. You would think that they would be rejoicing and excited because the storm was over. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great 
fear. Why were they filled with great fear? They knew about storms. You and I know about storms to some degree. You and I know about storms, and we have a healthy respect for them. You know, we're kind of stupid sometimes. You know, the hurricane warning sirens go off, and what do you do? You do what I do. You go outside to look at them. (laughs) We may be a little stupid, but we acknowledge the power of storms. The disciples understood that. They did not understand a human being talking to the storm and it's stopping. All of a sudden, they knew that all this fear they had of the storm was surpassed by their righteous fear of the guy that was in the boat. And guess what? That's what's going to change their lives. But we'll get to that later. And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The question you have to ask yourself. Either this story is totally made up. It is. It was just totally fabricated by Mark or somebody. Or you have to address the question, who was in the boat that could command the storm? And if you accept that the story is true, you can't just pretend that he's just a good teacher sharing good, pithy sayings with you and me. And that's the paraphrase of the C.S. Lewis argument. He's not just a good teacher. He's either a lunatic or he's the Lord. If you believe this passage is true, you have to acknowledge the fact that he is the Son of God. Maybe next week we'll talk about faith a little bit. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this demonstration of the power of Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would have faith to believe. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.